Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read some uh, scriptures that uh, we hope are well known to you. If they're not, they should be. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, most people think, and, and there are questions that arise from this verse of scripture, because the Bible specifically says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Most Christians think that we're redeemed from sin. And, of course, we are. That's a true statement. We are redeemed from sin. But you've got to realize that Paul is writing letters not for the purpose of them being saved throughout perpetuity. We don't know that he knew that the Holy Ghost would save these letters for hundreds of years for our sake as well as previous generations. He's writing to address certain present-day circumstances and situations that exist in the churches to whom he writes the church in galatia specifically is identified as being affected by jews christian jews but those who have not uh, turned loose of the the um, the law of moses and they've come in after paul's ministry and um, spread a doctrine that is apparently taking root taking hold within the the churches in the region of galatia galatia is not a city it's a it's a region and uh, apparently this doctrine is taking hold and taking root in these churches because they're adding to their faith in Jesus the keeping of the law. They're going back to the, the ordinances of what to eat and what not to eat and keeping the Sabbath day and some of that kind of stuff. And so Paul is trying to correct that. He's trying to say it's not Jesus plus the keeping of the law that brings the blessings of God. It's Jesus who has fulfilled the law. And so to the Galatians, he writes specifically talking about what belongs to them because they're already born again. They're already filled with the Spirit. They've already received the new birth, Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So he writes to them in a different way than he would to, to some other churches. For example, in Romans chapter 6 and throughout the book of Romans, but particularly in chapter 6, Paul goes to great lengths to talk about uh, the fact that we as Christians are dead to sin. He talks about the fact that we were buried with ba through baptism with Jesus to take part in his death, that Jesus died for us, but that we died with him because he died as our substitute. Romans chapter 6 and verse 7 says, For he that has died, uh, King James says he that is dead, but literally means has died, the process of, of uh, taking part in Jesus' death through confessing him as our Lord and Savior. He said, For he that has died is freed from sin. He goes on a few verses later and says, Therefore, or likewise, reckon ye yourselves dead to sin, that you should live under righteousness. Now, he's not talking about individual sins. He's not talking about sins plural. He's talking about sin singular. In other words, general or overall sin, the sin that brought man under the curse of disobedience to God, the sin that brought man into the place of spiritual death, man's original sin in the Garden of Eden that passed upon all men. So he goes to great lengths to tell us that we should reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive unto God. Now, the word reckon is interesting because it's the counting term. Literally, it means to accept to be true that which is an accomplished reality. The realization that it's a accounting term means this is the way it is, so don't ignore it. And that's what the Bible is explaining to us, or Paul is explaining to us, in the doctrine that he shares with us in the book of Romans, 
that you are dead to sin. Well, the reason you're dead to sin, general sin, overall sin, and therefore all the, the results thereof is because Jesus died in your place. You died with him when you made him your Lord and Savior. And so since you shared in his death, you now share in his resurrection. But that's not what he's talking to the Galatians about. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. In other words, you don't have to keep the law. You don't have to do the things that those Jews are coming in and telling you that you have to do or else because you've already been redeemed from the curse. You don't have to worry about getting on God's bad side by not eating the right things or failing to eat the wrong things or I think I said that wrong, but you know what I mean. By not keeping the the dietary laws of of the Old Testament or not keeping the Sabbath the way that the Jews do and so forth. He says, you don't have to worry about that. So he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that or so that, verse 14, here's the result of Jesus doing that for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. And that you might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now what he's addressing here is that the Judaizers again are saying you can't have the blessings of God unless you keep the law of Moses. You can't have the blessings of Abraham unless you keep the Sabbath and keep the dietary laws and all the the rules and restrictions. Believing in Jesus is great. We're glad for what Jesus did. But Moses was given the law by God and so that law has to be kept. That's what Paul is trying to erase in their thinking. So he tells them very specifically, here's the answer. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. God's already made provision for that. You don't have to do anything to get it. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, not through the keeping of the law, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He goes on at the end of the chapter and, and explains further in verse 29, Galatians 3:29, And if, literally since, you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now he knows that they know enough about the Old Testament to know what the curse of the law is. So he doesn't elaborate on it in the book of Galatians. But we, as modern day Gentiles very often are not familiar with or not acquainted with what the law of of Moses or the curse of the law entailed. So we have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 to see what the the Bible says the curse of the law really is so that we know what we're redeemed from and what the blessing of Abraham includes. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first part of the chapter talks about the blessings of obedience to the law of Moses. Thank God we don't have to keep that anymore. But in beginning in verse 15 and through the end of the chapter... Moses, in his farewell address to the Jews, the children of Israel, elaborates on what's going to happen to them if they don't walk in obedience to God's commandments. Beginning in verse 15, we won't read the whole chapter, but we will pick a few verses out for uh, time's sake. But it shall come to pass that if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day. In other words, keep the law that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. All these curses. Notice disobedience in one respect opens you up to all the curses or did under the old covenant. Thank God it's not like that today. 
Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shalt thou shall be the breast basket in thy store. Cursed shalt thou be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land. The increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and, when, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Verse 20, the Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings. Now, whenever we read this, we've got to stop and make some clarification on some things. To the casual reader, verses like this, would seem to indicate that God's the one that's the author of, of trouble, poverty, affliction, and later on he'll specify sickness. Because the translators took a verse according to took take verses, many verses, in the Old Testament, according to Dr. Robert Young, who's the author of Young's Analytical Concordance of the Greek and Hebrew languages. He was a foremost Greek and Hebrew scholar in his day. I think he was the number one Hebrew scholar of his day and considered to be the number two Greek scholar in his day. Still pretty high on the list, either way you want to look at it. And he he pointed out in his book that's now out of print, but you can get certain things through research to to show that it was there. As a matter of fact, it's a part of his footnotes, or uh, I'm sorry, not footnotes, but part of the notes that he made in uh, the analytical concordance is still in print that you can get a hold of now. That in the Greek language, there's a permissive tense of a verb that the English language doesn't have. And so the translators translated into the causative sense when it should have been in the permissive sense. And so literally what it's saying, what God's trying to get across, what Moses is saying, is that God will allow these things because of your disobedience. But it really goes even further than that. If you study it out even further, which recently I've had the opportunity to do, it's talking about the active work of God. In a permissive sense. I know that sounds confusing. So let me explain what I mean. It's saying. That God will actively. Not work to keep these curses from coming on you. Which implies. Appropriately I believe. That when we're walking in obedience to God's word. God is actively at work. To keep these things from coming upon us. So it is talking about the active work of God. It's just saying when you're in disobedience, I won't actively work to keep these things from happening. But when you're in obedience, I do actively work to keep these things from coming upon you. Well, he goes on. Verse 21, the Lord shall make, literally allow, specifically not actively work to keep from, keep these things from coming upon you. Pestilence cleave unto thee until, they are, that, until he has consumed thee from off the land whether thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee. In other words, he's not actively working to keep this from happening with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Verse 27, the Lord will smite, literally shall not actively work to keep you from being smitten. With the botch of Egypt, most uh, scholars believe that that's leprosy. And with the emeralds or hemorrhoids. And with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. Skin diseases, incurable skin diseases he's talking about. The Lord shall smite thee, not actively work to keep you from being smitten, in other words. With madness, mental diseases, and blindness, 
and astonishment of heart. Now, astonishment of heart has to do with panic attacks and anxiety and so forth. That's part of the curse of the law. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Now skip with me over to verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the works, words of this law that are written in this book, well, if it's the law then these, and these are curses, then it's got to be curses of the law. The very same thing that Paul is writing about in Galatians 3. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. Again, it's the active work of God on hold to keep these things from taking place. The Lord will make thy plagues wonderful and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring, not actively work to keep from being a, coming upon you all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of and they shall cleave unto thee also every sickness now everybody say every sickness now in this list of, of um, things that uh, will come upon you as a result of the curse of law or curse of disobedience there are 11 different things that are mentioned specifically we mention many of them by name it's talking about eruptive fevers. It's talking about incurable skin diseases. It's talking about uh, blindness, mental diseases, and so forth. There are 11 specific things. Consumption is mentioned. Talking about tuberculosis. 11 specific things. But you know as well as I do that those are not all the sicknesses there are. So God shows you through Moses as he's inspired to tell the people that every sickness whether it's mentioned in this book of the law or not, is included in the curse. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. Again, it's the active work of God on hold or stayed to prevent these things from happening, and it stayed because of the disobedience of the people. Also, every sickness and every disease which is not written in the book of the law will the Lord bring upon thee or allow upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now, the, the question is simply this. Since the Bible says that we are redeemed from the curse of the law and the Bible says that we're redeemed from sin, general sins, not individual sins. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we're not redeemed from our individual sins. Our individual sins are forgiven. But your individual sins wouldn't, take place, wouldn't do anything about the spiritual death condition upon mankind. For example, if God forgave me or you or all of us, from our individual sins when we got saved. And that's all that he did. We still have the original sin in the Garden of Eden that caused spiritual death to come upon mankind to deal with. So God had to deal with sin as a whole package in one stroke to deal with sin in a general sense. And when I say general sense, I'm talking about the original sin. He dealt with the original sin from which Yours and my individual sins were a byproduct. If it weren't for the original sin, if it weren't for spiritual death, you and I or nobody else would be considered to be a sinner before we got saved. Does that make sense? So he had to deal with the original sin. So since we're redeemed from original sin, dead to sin as Paul describes, and we're redeemed from the curse of the law, how did mankind and what does God intend to reveal to us 
about the double cure that's available through the work of Jesus. Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. This is before Deuteronomy chapter 28. Before Moses' farewell address. I think it's interesting for us to recognize what did the people think when Moses was giving his farewell address? How did they see things and therefore how did they read or hear what Moses was telling them as he was going off the scene? Let's start reading in... uh, I'm sorry, I said it's chapter 23, it's chapter 21. Let's start reading in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. It said, And they journeyed, this is the children of Israel, coming out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. They've already uh, elected through unbelief not to go into the promised land as God intended for them. So now they're beginning their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Egypt, or uh, land of Edom, excuse me. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Now I want you to see this is the way that the devil usually works. He wants you to get discouraged for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is so that he can get into your mouth. He can affect your words. That's what discouragement is all about from the devil's perspective. Is to change what you say or influence what you say. So the people, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought out us, uh, brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. For our soul loatheth this light bread. Now, it's, the only reason they're not going into the promised land is because of their unbelief. Not because of God's will. God hadn't changed his mind. He brought them out of Egypt for the purpose of bringing them into the promised land, but they refused. They saw the giants in the land in Numbers chapter 13 and refused to go in. They said, we can't do it. Even though God says we can, God doesn't know what he's talking about, so we can't do it. So they're the ones that refused the blessings of God. And now they're discouraged because they're in the wilderness by their own choice. And so they speak against God and speak against Moses. What do they do? They start speaking things that aren't true. They say, well, God must have intended for us to die in the wilderness. No, God intended for you to go into the promised land. You know, there's, I've heard people say, well, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord why I didn't receive my healing. Well, folks, I don't mean to be unkind or smart aleck about it, but you don't have to wait till you get to heaven. Just ask me. I'll be glad to tell you. And the reason I can tell you with confidence is because it works the same way with everybody. The Bible tells us so. The reason people fail to receive their healing is not because God didn't want them to be healed. Jesus already paid the price for it. God wants everybody to be healed. God wants everybody to walk in the fullness of his blessings. But mankind as a whole, not let me say it this way, not everybody accepts that. Not everybody chooses to accept it and receive it God's way. And that is through faith. So here's the same thing that people do today taking place in Numbers chapter 21. They refused to take hold of the promised land because of what they saw and what they felt about what they saw. They spoke against God and now they're saying, well, God must have wanted us to die in the wilderness all the way or all the time from the beginning. No, he didn't. You chose that. 
Moses, this must have been part of your plan. No, Moses' plan was to take you into the promised land. And notice the result, verse 6. And the Lord sent, and again, this is a verse, uh, an active verb that is translated in the causative sense when it should be in the permissive sense. It said, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel, the people of Israel died. Now, again, it goes back to the active work of God. Up until the time they spoke against God and spoke against Moses, God was actively at work keeping the fiery serpents who already were there in the wilderness where the people were. It's not like he brought them in, shipped them in from out of town. They were already there. But the active work of God, as long as they were walking in obedience, kept them safe from the circumstances around them. Circumstances in this case mean the fiery or poisonous serpents. But as soon as they stepped outside of God's protection through disobedience, speaking against God and against his word, that's when God had to permit it, not because that's the way he wanted it, not because he's trying to teach them a lesson, not because he's finally got a way to to bring upon them what he always wanted them to have, tragedy and calamity, but because of their own action, their own choice to speak against God, the active hand of God was stayed. The active work of God was overcome. And so the fiery serpents came in among the people. Now, if we can identify what the people think about this circumstance and about this situation, we can understand what they would hear when Moses spoke Deuteronomy chapter 28 to them. What do they understand about trouble and calamity? Notice verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Isn't it interesting how it's always easier to recognize sin after you commit it? You might be tempted to do something and rationalizing is being okay to do it. And as soon as you do it, your heart tells you how wrong it was. At least that's the way it works with me. I'm sure you've never had that experience, but that's the way it works in case you ever do. The people knew speaking against God and speaking against Moses was wrong before they ever said anything. But I'm sure they weren't expecting the consequence that occurred. But when the consequence does occur and the fiery serpents come in and many of the people are bitten and the poison takes effects on their body and many people die, that's when the people have to own up to their own actions. And they said, we have sinned. In other words, they're confessing and acknowledging this calamity is because of our actions, not because of some will of God for his plan to, for us to die in the wilderness. See, if they really believed that God wanted them to die in the wilderness, why would they be standing against what they would expect the will of God to be in action? If God wanted them to die in the wilderness, why wouldn't they say, well, see, I guess we were right. God wanted us to die in the wilderness, so he sent these snakes in among us. They're going to bite all of us, and we're all going to die here in this place. That's not what they do. Because they knew God didn't want them to die in the wilderness. They knew that they didn't go into the promised land because of their choice, not because of God's choice. So they respond by acknowledging their own sin. They said, we have sinned. We have sinned. Not God is doing us wrong. Not Moses. You're working against us. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord, meaning they know they're not supposed to do that. And against you, Moses. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. 
Now, I want to sub, uh, submit something to you here, folks, and that is something very simple, and that is they know they need a double cure. They need forgiveness from sin, the sin specifically the sin of speaking against God and against Moses, and then they need healing from the snake bites that have already affected the people in the, in the congregation. They need a double cure. A single cure wouldn't be enough. They're not saying we've sinned, so on our way out, we want to make sure that we're forgiven. But we accept responsibility for our own actions and the consequence thereof, so we'll just die from these poisonous bites. No, they want to be healed from the snake bites. They want to be healed from the action that the poison is taking place in their body. But in order to do that, they're going to need something else. And that is an answer for their sin. They need a double cure. Now, please understand that the children of Israel knew this when they were in the wilderness. How come the church can't get the hold of this truth today? We've sinned, Moses. We spoke against God and against you. We weren't supposed to do that. And these serpents have come in. And now the, all the people are bitten. Or many of the people are bitten. Many of the people have died. We need deliverance from these snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses. Notice God. It doesn't say Moses prayed for 30 days. Finally got God's attention. And God says well enough of them have died now. I'll do something about it. It seems to be an instantaneous thing. Moses prayed. The Lord answers. In other words, their prayer, their acknowledgement of their own sin enables the active work of God to be reinstated. Not only to protect them, but to deliver them from what's already happened. So the Lord said, he gave Moses a plan, make thee a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. This is a type of Jesus on the cross. A serpent of brass is talking about Jesus becoming sin, not a lamb of gold, which you would expect if it was a type of Jesus. But Jesus said in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about going to the cross. Jesus tells us that this Old Testament story was a type of him. Well, who's going to know better than him? Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So here's the double cure, forgiveness for their sin and deliverance from the sickness that's caused from their disobedience. Now, is this just a one-time thing or is this supposed to be a pattern? Well, let's see. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let her every word be established. Turn with me over Psalm 103. Fast forward a few hundred years to the time of David. David is inspired by the Holy Ghost to offer worship to God in a song that the Holy Ghost is going to save for us. Now, again, we don't know if David knows that these things will be saved. All he's doing is worshiping God at the moment from his heart as the Holy Ghost is quickening him to do. And notice in Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Now, folks, remember, God doesn't change. 
if these were the benefits of God in the Old Testament in David's day, then they've got to be the same benefits in our day. Amen? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Well, what are his benefits, David? Who forgiveth all thine iniquities? Well, thank God most of the church believes in that. Who healeth all thy diseases? Notice he puts those on equal footing. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases? He doesn't emphasize the forgiveness of sins in a greater manner than he does the healing of disease. They're entirely equal. He doesn't say, bless the Lord, O my soul, for his great forgiveness. And as a side note, he does other things for us too. He puts these hand in hand, side by side, in such a way that the translators put them in the same verse. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases. Now, is this not exactly the same thing that took place in Numbers chapter 21? The people said to Moses, we've sinned. We're the cause of this calamity that's come upon us. We want you to pray for our forgiveness and our healing or deliverance. That's exactly what David said several hundred years later were the benefits of God. And I believe this psalm was inspired by the Holy Ghost. I believe it still is. Who forgiveth all thy iniquities and who healeth all thy diseases. Another benefit, verse 4, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. Who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. Who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Thank God for the benefits of the Lord. Now turn with me a few hundred years later to Isaiah chapter 53. Again, we're talking about the double cure, seeing if the Bible identifies that as a pattern. Isaiah chapter 53. All Bible scholars agree that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is the messianic chapter. It's talking about the work that Jesus will accomplish on the cross. Notice beginning in verse 4. Well, we better back up a little bit. Um, well, let's just back up to verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, folks, this is not the introduction. This is already talking about how to receive from God. In other words, the one to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed, the one to whom the power of God for these things to become a reality will be shown are those who believe the report. Believe and act on what God said, in other words. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus looked like a normal guy. That's hard for me to accept. Somehow in my thinking, I guess I romanticize the idea that when you see Jesus, there's just a glow on him or something about him that he's taller than everybody and handsomer than everybody and better built than everybody else. The Bible says that wasn't the case. There was nothing about his physical appearance that we'd look at him and say, he's the guy. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, literally pains, and acquainted with grief, literally sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our pains. 
and uh, I'm sorry, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. The word griefs is the word sickness. The word sorrows is the word pains. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now here's the sin part. Transgressions and iniquities covers both the original sin, Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, and individual sins. The work of Jesus encompasses both. Forgiveness for both. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now notice again verse 4 and verse 5. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. It's almost like the Holy Ghost knew that that healing would be a controversy in the modern day church. Because the only surely there is in this verse is concerning sickness and disease. Now, of all the places where the Bible has a chance to emphasize, surely Jesus bore the price for sins. Surely Jesus paid the price for forgiveness of sins. Surely, of all the opportunities that there would have been to say something like that, the only surely, absolutely certainly recognize this to be true, is concerning the carrying away of sickness and disease. The payment for sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. In other words, Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Individual sins, but more importantly, the original sin. The sin that brought spiritual death upon mankind. The chastisement of our peace. The word peace is the word shalom. It means well-being in every area. It includes financial prosperity. We didn't take time to read it, but in the the, uh, 28th chapter of Deuteronomy... The blessings of God cover, in the first 14 verses of the chapter, cover more about financial prosperity and financial well-being than it does anything else. There are a lot of verses from chapter, from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter, which talks about poverty and curses upon you financially through disobedience. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. God made financial and physical and material well-being a part of the package that Jesus died for. And he puts that on equal footing with Jesus shedding his blood for sin. That makes a lot of people mad. But that's what the Bible says. Finally, it says, the chastisement of peace was upon him. And finally, it says, and with his stripes, the shedding of his blood, we are healed. In other words, here's the same double cure. In this case, it elaborates a little little further to include a triple cure. But it's the same double cure is identified in the scripture in several different places, several that we've already seen as the payment, the blood of Jesus being shed, the work of Jesus on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection being the price paid, a worthy price paid to redeem man from sin as well as to redeem him from sickness. Now, there's a lot of controversy about the subject of healing, as I said, specifically about Isaiah 53. And there are many people in the body of Christ that will say, well, Jesus healed us spiritually. There is no such thing as spiritual healing in the Bible. God doesn't heal you spiritually. He makes you a new spirit. There's no healing involved. But the Holy Ghost didn't leave it at that. He gave us two commentaries on Isaiah 53. The first was in Matthew chapter 8. The second one is in 1 Peter chapter 2. In other words, in case 
the church ran into situations where we had men's commentaries saying, well, that doesn't mean healed from physical sickness. That doesn't mean God wants everybody to be well. That doesn't mean that Jesus shed his blood for everybody's physical well-being. It means something else spiritually. In case that was the, the, the situation that arose, and it certainly has arisen, God gave us two commentaries inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us what God meant. First is in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. It says, When the evening was come, they brought unto Jesus many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here's a commentary on Isaiah 53, 5 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, some will say, well, see, when Jesus did that, when he was here on the earth, that fulfilled it. Jesus healed the sick when he was here on the earth, and so it, it didn't include, healing wasn't included in the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Well, we could take time and show where Jesus forgave sins when he was here on the earth, too. But he still had to go to the cross for mankind's well-being. Now, people miss the point where it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. It's not talking about Jesus healing the sick, fulfilled the prophecy. It's saying the fulfilling of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 5 is the fact that Jesus healed all that were sick. It was only the healing of all that were sick that qualified as a picture or a type of what would be accomplished once and for all when Jesus shed his blood on the cross. Remember Isaiah 53, 5 is talking about the work of Jesus on the cross, not the work of Jesus in his earthly ministry. So the fact that Jesus forgave sins on the earth, you remember the guy that was let down by his four friends through the tiling in the roof? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man that was crippled, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the religious people freaked. They said to themselves, among themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they're right about that. What they fail to recognize is that Jesus is the Son of God here on the earth. And Jesus said, which is easier to say? Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Or man, your sins are forgiven. And then he said this. He said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. In other words, healing was the proof that Jesus had power to forgive sins. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus' earthly ministry. It tells us that Jesus' earthly ministry was endued with power from on high to do the same work while he was here as God can do and wants to do from heaven. What does it tell us about his work on the cross? Not a thing. His work on the cross is identified several hundred years before he ever comes to the earth through Isaiah operating in the office of the prophet, speaking by the inspiration of God saying, this is what the Messiah will do. He's not talking about this is what he'll do when he's here on the earth. He's saying this is what he do, will do when he goes to the cross. And the only thing that fits the type of what Jesus will do on the cross is the healing of all that were sick. 
you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus just healed some of what were sick, it wouldn't be a type of the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5. Because if healing some that were sick was a type of the fulfillment, then we would have every legal right to say that God may heal some, but that the price was not paid for the healing of all by Jesus going to the cross. Now turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll close with this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's the second commentary that we have. On Isaiah 53. Let's start in verse 21. It says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but was committed, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now, when is he talking about? He's got to be talking about Jesus going to the cross. Because there were a number of times where the Pharisees and the, and the, the doctors of the law would say something to Jesus, and Jesus would turn around and say, you hypocrites. He called the Pharisees snakes, whited sepulchers, full of dead man's bones, and so forth. Peter is not saying Jesus was some milk toast kind of guy who never responded to his critics. No, he's talking about one specific time, and that is the fulfillment of prophecy, the Old Testament prophecy, that he was like a lamb taken silently to the shearers. When it came time to stand before Pilate to pay the price for mankind, he wouldn't speak. Pilate would say, this is the accusation brought against you, and Jesus wouldn't answer. Pilate even tried to coax him into talking. He said, don't you realize that I have the power to, to judge you? And then finally Jesus does speak up and say, you wouldn't have that power unless God gave it to you. That's what it's talking about. Not in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's talking about Jesus being led to the cross, part of the trial of Jesus. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the cross or on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, when Peter starts talking about the work of Jesus on the cross, he mentions two things. And remember, he mentions this not only from an eyewitness testimony, but he includes Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus as a part of the description that he gives. A part of the eyewitness testimony that describes Jesus on the cross. Who his own self, in his own body, bear our sins on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live under righteousness. Now Paul and, or Peter understood Paul's doctrine in this respect. There were, there were things that Peter told us that he didn't understand about Paul. He wrote to the church and said, Our brother Paul, our beloved brother Paul write some things that are hard to understand. But this part of it, he understood. Now, whether he got it from Paul or not, he probably didn't. But he had this understanding of the work that Jesus had done and the benefit that it brought to mankind. Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, 
going to the cross, dying on our behalf to set men free from sin. Paul elaborates more than Peter does about sin being the general original sin. Peter just says sins in in an overall term. That we being dead to sins or bear our sins in his own body, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness. And then he adds the second part of the cure. By whose stripes you were healed. By whose stripes you were healed. Now we know that Peter understood this as a part of the package. We know that Peter Peter understood this as a part of what Jesus paid for because this is exactly, in in the Greek, it's exactly the same wording. It's exactly the same phrase that he said in Acts chapter 9 to Aeneas, the man that he found crippled. It's translated this way in Acts chapter 9 verse... uh, Now let me find it real quick. Rather than just refer to it, let let me point it out. Now, big fat fingers won't get there. Hold on just a second. Verse 32. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down to the saints, also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. This is exactly the same phrase. Is by his stripes we were healed. Exactly the same phrase. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. By Jesus Christ's stripes you were healed. So Peter had to understand what it was what he was talking about here. Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed, and he arose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. That's exactly what Peter said in giving us a commentary on the work of Jesus on the cross. Folks, I want you to see, I want you to be so convinced, I want you to be assured that the Bible says over and over and over again. Plenty and enough times for us to create a doctrine from it. According to the Bible, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've looked at four witnesses already. Jesus paid the price for two things specifically identified in Scripture to set you free from sin, meaning spiritual death and the results thereof, and to set you free from sickness. Jesus is a double cure. Jesus is a double cure. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to bless you with all of our soul and to forget not all your benefits. You forgive all of our iniquities. Through the work of Jesus, that's already accomplished. So we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive unto righteousness. We reckon ourselves worthy to receive all of the blessings of Abraham that you intended for us, that Jesus came to offer himself a sacrifice for us to have. You forgive all our iniquities and you heal all of our diseases. We're redeemed from the curse of the law, not only those 11 specific categories of sickness, but every sickness and every disease not mentioned. Every sickness and every disease known or unknown to man. 
Every sickness and every disease is a part of the price that Jesus paid and shed his precious blood to overcome. So we reckon ourselves dead unto sickness as well. We accept to be true that which is an accomplished reality. Since we're dead unto sins, we are alive unto righteousness. Since we're dead unto sickness, through the work of Jesus, the substitutionary work of Jesus, we're alive under divine healing and health. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours. We may not look to be healed, and sickness may be attempting to attach itself to our bodies. But, Father, according to the word of God, the eternal, unchangeable word of God, we are free from sickness and disease in Jesus' precious name. Oh, Father, it's so good to be free from sickness. It's so good to be free from sickness. It's so good to walk in divine health. By faith, we take hold of it. And Jesus said, whatever we believe in our heart and said with our mouth, we would have. We believe your word, Father. We believe we're redeemed from sickness as well as sin. And so we believe that we receive our healing. And we shall have our healing according to your word. We shall have it. Sickness and disease shall depart from our bodies. Sickness and disease is on the way out now in the name of Jesus. We're being raised up by the power of God and restored to divine health in every way. We thank you, Father, that you even renew our youth. You satisfy our mouth with good things and renew our youth. Thank you, Father, that we're free from every sickness and every disease, from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. It's so good to be healed, Father. Thank you so much for the work that Jesus did for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Thank God for the double cure. Amen. Say it with me. I'm dead to sin and I'm dead to sickness. Therefore, I'm alive unto righteousness and alive unto divine health. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.